would you agree with the with learning being fun and exciting? I would also agree with it being a struggle. <laughs> time for Arrested DevOps, the podcast that helps you achieve understanding, develop good practices, and operate your team and business for maximum DevOps awesomeness. I'm your host, Trevor Hess, at Trevor G. Hess on Twitter. Arrested DevOps is brought to you by 10th Magnitude, a cloud services company that figures if you're listening to this podcast, you must be pretty cool. You can find out about joining their cloud services team at arresteddevops.com slash 10th Magnitude. This episode is also brought to you by Datadog, a monitoring tool that helps bridge the gap between operations and dev teams. Datadog brings together system metrics, changes, alerts, and events from over 70 common infrastructure tools, such as Chef, Docker, and AWS, so that dev and ops teams share their key data and alerts in a single place and collaborate on issues in real time. Datadog is available for a 14-day trial at arresteddevops.com datadog. Tonight, we'll be talking about getting bounced out of our comfort zones, or in this case, OSs. Going from Linux to Windows and the other way around. Our guest tonight is Matt Matthew Walt Walter, or Matt Walter for legal purposes. Matt, tell us about yourself. Hi, Trevor. Uh, my name is Matthew Walter, and I'm a Linux sysadmin at a company called North American Power. It's a deregulated energy marketer in Connecticut. And I've been working on transitioning, not completely, but from... Linux to Windows over the last six months or so. Awesome! Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Happy to or be here. I guess here. me. It's uh, this is a, this is one of our first one on ones. Thanks for thanks for being my first one on one, Matt. I'm happy to be here, Trevor. <laughs> so as we get started, let's briefly go over what we're going to talk about tonight on the show. First of all, we're going to talk about why do we switch? What makes us switch? Do we is it is it of our own volition or no? We're going to talk about managing installations, OS philosophies, the different terminals, so Bash or Command Line or PowerShell or Z Shell, what have you. We'll talk about Pythons and PowerShells, so how do we get to uh, managing regex and doing kind of those sort of those sorts of things, where we can get tripped up with line endings, the differences in file systems. We're going to talk a little bit about monitoring strategies, LDAP and Active Directory. And finally, we're going to talk about actually utilizing Windows on Mac or utilizing Linux on Windows. So as we get started here, I had to, I had to say it's odd getting getting running here because it's I'm so used to Matt and Bridget just running with everything, and so it's it's, it's exciting. Um, and uh, I'll admit to being a little nervous. I think we're both a little bit out of our comfort zone here. <laughs> Outside of transitioning operating systems. Mm. All right, so let's let's get started. So Matt, you you mentioned briefly when you introduced yourself why you're going through these transitions because you're you're in the middle of you're kind of in the middle of going through a, an organizational transformation. So you want to talk a little bit about how that felt and why, like how you approach the situation. Well, uh, so I was told in February, I think, that our company was going to be starting a transition from a Linux LAMP stack with PHP over to a .NET stack for a, uh, a new line of business app that's running the majority of our uh, back-end sort of stuff. And as I, I'm actually the only ops person at uh, North American Power right now, 
So being a Linux admin and being told I was transitioning over to a Windows stack, I was kind of, uh, I was a little leery at first. But after looking into it a little bit, I found that there's a lot that I was interested in and a lot of things that I could still leverage from what I knew. Because we run Ansible for our configuration management here for the, um, the Linux side. And just looking at the possible tools and what, what I could learn on, on Windows and how I could leverage that going forward, I, I decided to stay. And it was still kind of a scary thing, though, going into, like, I'm a Linux admin, and I'm you know, going to try and learn Windows. <laughs> it's not, not something I ever thought I would do. Yeah, it can be an interesting transition as we'll as we'll explore tonight. So for me, I've uh, lately I've started having more and more clients pop up that are are Linux, and so they're kind of getting some some Linux in my Windows, and it's been interesting. So so full disclosure, I've been I've been working with Matt a little bit the past couple of weeks, um, and so Matt can Matt can testify firsthand as to to how much I've been. Uh, struggling with things like if statements in bash. <laughs> um, but it's, it's been a lot of fun getting, getting familiar with Linux. Uh, I, I personally have worked with Max in the past, both as a failed graphic designer and as a, having worked a little bit with Ruby on rails at my last company. So it's been interesting getting more comfortable in bash and finally opening up, you know, installing Z shell or these other, other tools. And, you know, it's, it's just, Something for me that is just that that struggle to keep learning, which isn't really a struggle. It's more of a, a really exciting, fun thing to do. Uh, I don't know, Matt. Would, would you would you agree with the with learning being fun and exciting? I would also agree with it being a struggle. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's, uh, it's drinking from the fire hose most days. Yes, but much like being being a child and seeing an open fire hydrant, it's hard not to play with the fire hose. Oh, that's true. <laughs> All right, so let's talk about the differences in, in kind of the approach we have when we go from Windows to Linux or vice versa. Let's just talk about the different things that we know about these operating systems that we think might kind of trip each other up. So, you know, the first thing we kind of listed out here to talk about is uh, uh, managing installations. You know, I come from a world where... As we all know, I've got my developer background. So I, I largely come from a world where installing something means downloading an exe or an MSI, double-clicking it, and going through an install shield wizard. But that's not really how things work on Linux, is it? No, it's more like uh, as long as you know or can find the package name for what you want, uh, you can probably do it through your favorite package manager. And, and that way you always know that it will always be there through a, a secure uh, or reasonably secure source. And if you don't, there's other people's package, other repositories, like for instance on RHEL, there's the Apple repo that somebody's maintaining that through the fantastic goodness of their hearts and providing us with a great thing. So I uh, just want to back up a second there. So you said packages. Mm-hmm. So for me, you know, obviously now I know what a package is, but let's, let's, let's pretend I didn't know what a package is. What is, what is a package and what is a package manager? So with a Linux package manager, it's the code that you want to install. And when you actually create one, there's a series of scripts that run. It comes with a, an install script, an uninstall script, a here's the things that need to be done before you actually install the package itself, which is usually either the binary that you're installing or you, know, you can compile the source code and all that, that sort of thing. But what they come with is a 
key that says it came from a reputable source. It's signed, and you're able to just reach out and grab them using whatever whichever your distribution tool is, whether it's apt-get or yum. And you can get metadata about those packages, uh, when they were updated, what the updates consisted of, that sort of thing. Very, very convenient in your, your current shell. It's not like uh, you have to go to a foreign website and download something from places like SourceForge, et cetera. Oh, you mean malware? Yeah. Malware, malware.com? Malware Central. <laughs> and so now we also are starting to see that appear in Windows space too, though. So we're starting to see package managers come up. I mean, so I think for a few years now, a lot of folks in the Windows space have been familiar with Chocolaty, which is a Windows package manager that, you know, uses, uh, utilizes, I believe it uses PowerShell as its backend um, to, to manage the installation of our, of our typical EXEs or however you've scripted for these things, your package to install. But again, it goes into a package repository where these things are maintained and kind of pruned for, for, for goodness. And also, as, as Windows 10 rolled out, um, we saw the emergence of one Git for Windows as, as well. So have you, had, have you had the opportunity to see uh, Chocolaty or one Git yet? So I've seen Chocolaty in action, and it's very cool. It, it definitely gives the same feel as a Linux package manager. Uh, I've heard a few things. I haven't checked recently. I, I know there was a, a thing about it not actually being like signed packages or secure, so it's not something I would run in production. But if that changes, then it's something that I'm very interested in seeing. Plus, the, the Microsoft implementation, what was it, OneGet, I think is actually still using mostly Chocolaty on the back end. I think so. so I think Chocolaty is the package source for OneGet, or one of them. Yeah. So if it, if it was actually like a curated and secure repository of signed packages, that would be fantastic, and I would love to use it. Because it, when I did try it, it was very simple, and it just everything just kind of worked, which is exactly what I'm looking for. Yeah, so I, I believe the answer is they are. It is curated. Mm. What I'm not sure about is, well, rather, I, actually, I don't think they are signed. Mm. In fact, I have seen upper, or situations before where the PowerShell script that runs is actually pulling an executable or MSI down from the release area of whatever company site it is. Yeah, and I've actually run into situations. I think I was installing Notepad plus plus, and it so happened that that day, uh, Notepad++ decided that was the day that they were going to change their package directory structure. And so all of a sudden, my cookbooks were not converging because they, what, the chocolatey package that was trying to run wasn't, being, wasn't able to pull down a file because it didn't exist anymore. So I think, I think you're right. I think it's kind of it's in its infancy still, and we should uh, look to it to, for, for greatness, but might not be quite ready for everyone yet. The other cool thing that Linux package managers do is you can, it manages your dependencies for you, but it also, you can mirror the whole repository. I think last time I tried for a new Ubuntu 1204, it was uh, like something like 80 gigs, which is large, but not unreasonable. So you could still mirror the entirety of the Ubuntu package repository locally to do package management and make sure that you're not sending crazy updates out to your servers. That's awesome. So let's kind of talk about the OS philosophies next. So, I mean, kind of, kind of what I'm thinking here is just some of the, the, the basic tenants that we see in our, in our operating systems. So when, when Matt and I were discussing this, this topic before we decided to turn it into a, a podcast, one of the first things that we talked about was, was the concept of in Linux being able to interact with everything as a file 
whereas in Windows, everything is an API or a registry key. Uh, and this topic came up a little bit in our, our first Microsofty episode where uh, we had um, Jessica DeVita and Jeffrey Snover on, and Snover sort of said the same thing, and that was one of the reasons why he said that kind of doing some of the, uh, as I recall, some of doing some of the kind of infrastructure as code and configuration management pieces is challenging in Windows because everything isn't a file. Yeah, we definitely run across that one. So, I mean, so on the Linux side, it's it's everything is a file, but it's also everything has one job. So all the tools are created, the Unix philosophy of, of small atomic things and then being able to chain them together to get whatever result you want, that provides very flexible tools. But, I mean, th- things like everything down to the, like the sockets uh, for, the, for the network stuff or uh, if you want to actually change your running system going into, there's a file directory that tracks everything that's happening in your system and you can go look at it. it it's, it's an interesting, everything is accessible. There's nothing that's hidden away. It makes it very handy. Yeah, I mean, that's that's definitely one of my frustrations. Every time I open up a, a Windows operating system, and one of the first things I have to do is I have to go into folder settings. I have to make sure that we're not hiding things from me. You know, I mean, obviously, when we're, when we're looking actually in PowerShell or CMD, I can, I can actually list all the files, no problem, as long as I'm, as long as I'm an administrator. It drives me crazy whenever I go into the file system, like into Explorer on a system, and I'm looking for a dot file, and I can't find it because it's not showing to me, or the extension for a file is hidden. It just irks me. <laughs> but yeah, absolutely. The uh, And that's that's one of the things that can be challenging about Windows. I mean, like you said, you can interact with anything live in the system in Linux. Um, and, uh, you know, that's why you can change just about anything without having to reboot, whereas in Windows you change anything and you almost always have to reboot. Although that's changing too. You can only hope. So as far as the, the Windows operating system philosophies, that's been changing a lot. I'm still like getting a, a handle on exactly um, what's going on in the Windows world. I, I would not call myself experienced in Windows at this point by any means. So how, where is that going? So it's it's interesting because it seems like there's in the in the, the conversations I've had with folks from Microsoft, it it seems like there's a genuine interest to kind of close the gap and alleviate these issues that, that folks run into because they are frustrating for everybody, especially as we move into this world where everything needs to be repeatable, everything's in the cloud, everything needs to be smaller, everything is compartmentalized and containerized and all those all of our favorite cadre of buzzwords. And it really seems like Microsoft is trying to work towards that. And so I've been told that, you know, there's you still have to do the occasional reboot in nano but it's not nearly as often as it was on any of the previous versions of uh, Windows Server, which is fantastic because you can you can manage those configuration changes without having to worry about okay, my system's now going to be down for you know two minutes, three minutes, twenty minutes, depending on how complicated your system is. So in in terms of Windows philosophy, though, like the Unix philosophy has always been you know the, the small atomic things and make everything accessible, but is there really in the, a driving Windows philosophy or management philosophy or anything like that? I think the answer is yes. I'm not sure how I would best phrase it. I think what I would say is, like you know, like we mentioned, it's it's kind of that that pattern where we're talking about everything has kind of a handle, and you know, in the .NET framework, everything has has a library that you can point at and you can you can interact with things 
in a, in a cons- kind of a consistent mm-hmm. way for the most part, but generally kind of opposite of what you were saying, having the idea of having one tool to do everything is, is much more common as opposed to in Linux where it's the smallest possible thing to do a job. It's these kind of heavyweight pieces that accomplish a lot, but maybe not as well as if it was broken out. I definitely, um, upon looking when I, when I did my research is, you know, is windows something that I'm, I'm interested in moving into at all? What I found was that the previous characterization that I would have said for Microsoft was that everything should be clicky and, and explain itself so that somebody who doesn't know what they're doing can do it. It definitely has been, has been changing more to with the advent of PowerShell and especially like DSC and moving toward nano. Um, it's been changing into more of, you need to know what you're doing and they're providing the powerful tools in order to, to do that. So, uh, absolutely. You know, I, I don't necessarily want to look down on anyone, but in a lot of cases there, there was a stereotype of the windows admin was unskilled because all they ever did was click buttons. And I, I definitely think that that's, that's changing a lot. Yeah. I mean, every, like with tools like chef and puppet, you wind up, everybody's trying to figure out how, how you can interact with a lot of these tools without having to be in that interface. And like you said, DSC provides a lot of functionality to get at that. But, you know, like trying to automate like SQL Server can be like pulling teeth because, you know, the SQL Server installer is a big, bulky, multi-step wizard. And it doesn't have a super friendly command it's line. It's fucking beast. At least, you know, it's not like installing a package <laughs> on Linux where you just add the flags and everything's there and then you can edit the config files. You know, when you're working against something like SQL, you've got to go find the right registry files. You've then got to figure out what the special command line tool is for SQL to get into to make sure that your logins and everything are configured correctly. You know, there's 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 so many moving pieces so that you can use this big giant tool that's very powerful but not necessarily as straightforward as some of the smaller pieces. Cool. Now that you have now you have the opportunity to make fun of my my bash skills because we're going to talk about bash versus z shell versus command line versus powershell. So making fun of your bash skills as uh, as funny as it was to watch that. I think that's actually a fantastic example because so with bash there's a lot of you have to go look up syntax and, and you had to figure out what those those uh, loop structures would look like and all of the occasionally difficult to like bash is pretty well documented but you've got to go find what you're looking for so the, the struggles that you had with that versus being able to just pick up powershell and, and get it so when i first started touching powershell figuring out the the, the syntax of you know verb noun and then um the, the couple Hang on a second. I've got a train, so if you want to pick that up for a second. Yeah, so I was able to kind of figure out how to do some of the bash stuff, but as I started looking at, like, I was, so I was trying to do an if statement, which in, you know, in PowerShell is pretty straightforward. Trying to accomplish the same thing in bash was driving me crazy. <laughs> I mean, I was, I, it was very interesting that the, the, the space meant something. And when spaces mean things, I get up. I get kind of irate because it drives me insane. Yeah, you, you were definitely <laughs> but, uh, the, the mix between white space being significant in a test structure, and then uh, trying to figure out what you were doing with that. It, it got kind of hairy there. But the, when I was picking up PowerShell, it was it's all very well documented. It, it 
follows the same patterns through everything. It's for me, it's, it's pretty confusing just for, for the, the, the commands don't follow a pattern other than they, they relate to what you're trying to do in some way. So, but after I learned that a few things like the get command commandlet and, and things like that, it went pretty quick. Whereas I can definitely see picking up bash for the first time and trying to do anything really reasonably complex with it could be a, a hairy experience. Yeah. I mean, it's just, it's very different. You know, it's, I can, I can express my intent in PowerShell. Whereas in, in bash, I need to know my intent, I think is, is, uh, is one way of describing it. And, you know, it's, a lot easier to, to base things off of what you want to do as opposed to necessarily having to know what you need to do. Which So if you, if you have any established paradigm in place, you can kind of build off of that. Whereas if you are unfamiliar with what you're, you know, how it works, it's hard to, to know what to look for. You know, that's one of the things I struggle with sometimes is, is what do I Google for to solve this problem? It's half Google food. Mm-hmm. So it's funny we didn't we, we kind of skipped right over command line and went went, went straight to bash bash to PowerShell. Well, I mean, I mean command line's not super useful. <laughs> I mean, at this point, I wish it was removed. It would simplify things. It really would. I mean, there's there's nothing. I mean, I'm sure that's not true. I'm sure there's something that I don't know about that you need you need command line around for some some old old executable that it can only run and command i i don't know if you know what that is tweet at me and let me know or at, at us i should say i'm sure it'd be an interesting read from what i saw it was mostly for um because microsoft has always been supportive of, of legacy and everything that they've done before trying not to break backwards compatibility which is fantastic um, so i think too. it's it's more just keeping that going but i think you're not alone in wanting mm. it to go away <laughs> definitely when i i was going to say that uh picking up powershell for the first time as you know, I, I live and breathe in Bash, and you know, pop out to Python or, or something like else if I'm if I'm looking for regex or trying to do anything that's more complex than uh, a one-liner, really. But picking up PowerShell for the first time and being able to, I was trying to stand up virtual machine in Azure and run some some things against it, and I was able to pipe a get Azure VM commandlet, which returned an object of that VM's attributes into the next command. That blew my mind. Like, being able to do that in my shell was really, really cool to me. Yeah, that's super. It's like that's that's so powerful. I mean, in fact, for me, going the opposite direction, not being able to. Um, so for me, I was trying to get something to to evaluate to true. It took me like a minute or two to realize, oh, I can't do that. This isn't PowerShell. There's there's, I can give an exit code, but I can't necessarily do truthiness. Yeah, even um, adding and, and doing math in Bash is kind of uh, there's a weird syntax for that one. Yeah, I mean, equality is is unusual for me, and in, in, even in PowerShell, because I'm used mm. to .NET and 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 kind of C based programming languages or JavaScript where it's you know equals equals or equals 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 or you know bang equals and having that mean something, not dash eq, meaning equality and and all the different matchers that you get to evaluate in, in PowerShell and Bash. I, I think we're on the same line to Pythons and PowerShells, talking about regex and uh, just parsing data in, in between the two shells. The thing that I noticed about PowerShell was that you can... It actually almost reminded me of the AWS CLI in that you were able to specify your outputs. and Because uh, I interacted with that 
much more than I had PowerShell at the point, being able to drop anything that you want into a table. Whereas if you try to do that in Bash, you end up with you know a long chain of pipes and said knock, trying to make that look the way that you want and get exactly what you want. And you're often better off just going to something like Python. Yeah, I don't even know what half those words were just now. Said and knock? They're processing. Oh, okay. I do know both of those words. I just didn't know them as one word. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's awesome how you can manage objects like that in PowerShell. You have to be careful, though, because I've, I've actually seen libraries published by some, some pretty big companies that misuse, uh, maybe misuse isn't right, but they don't send back objects in PowerShell. They actually send back the evaluated data. So, for example, instead of instead of providing you with the output of a command as data, they provide you the output of the command as a formatted table, which does not have the same interactability as the raw data. So you wind up with this table that you can you as you as human with eyes can read and understand, but you as person who wants computer to manage data have no use for. It's probably a Linux admin doing that. <laughs> That's, that's possible. <laughs> so, I mean, I, being able to interact with things as an as an object, I mean, it's it's partly a scripting language. It's great. I mean, you have access to the whole .NET framework. But so it sounds like as I go into Linux more, I need to learn more about Python. So, you want to talk a little bit about how you manage how you can kind of type commands into Python and manage data so that there's way. A lot of people, I believe, that will write command line parsers in Python. And then use those like right in line with the rest of their bash. So trying to get the the right output that they're looking for. But there's a lot of other things as far as like regex and making sure that when you're looking through a particular log file that you're going to get the data out um, that you're looking for. You know what string you're looking for. So you can move that into another file and then manipulate it in another way. Because if you're looking to get that that pretty table that PowerShell will give you, you have to figure out how to create it yourself with the, the requisite fields. There's a lot of stuff, uh, especially with, with Python, where if you want any library like uh, CSV or something like that to, to put something out to any other format than, than what you would get just standard end, uh, standard out, you need to go somewhere else because Bash can do it. It's just you're likely to pull your hair out versus using an actual programming language. I think that makes sense given mm. given what we've talked about with Bash. It's just it's it's different to me now that I've gotten used to working with PowerShell first to, to kind of lose that ability for you. It's like this mm-hmm. cool enhancement, I think, but for me, it's like I've lost something and for, for that. It's, it's Python is uh, kind of ubiquitous only because it's on pretty much every Linux box. You could use Ruby or mm-hmm. whatever other language you're comfortable with as well. And a lot of people have been doing new things with go just because it's, it's portable and, and pretty awesome. Portable and pretty mm-hmm. awesome. I think I like that. <laughs> But yeah, I've, I've actually, I have worked a little bit in when I was doing more Rails work, I, I worked with, with Ruby as a console. And uh, I found that that was pretty useful, you know, being able to kind of create those rake tasks and utilize those things. It's, it can be kind of fun and you get to do more com- complex and interesting things. Uh, so as we talk a little bit about code, why don't we talk a little bit about line endings mm-hmm. briefly? <laughs> At this point, so you, I know you understand this way better than I do. So I'm going to let you explain line ending, the difference in line endings between I the two think systems. I, I've, I've seen the, the results of this, but I think it's something like 
the uh, so that's where I'm at too. <laughs> it's it's like the Windows ends things with a uh, a specific type of carriage return, and Linux ends them with another. But the, the the major thing is that when you try and open a file from Linux on a Windows box, it looks more or less like one line or garbled, or you'll you'll see a invisible line ending somewhere that one operating system or the other won't handle. I'm at, I'm at the point now where those the yeah, wonderful boxes. I'm at the point now where I'm, I'm just trying to, I'm going to see if I can like get handle all of my line endings and just never worry about it again. But it's one of those things that will blow up in your face if you don't think about it correctly. What, what was that other issue we had? The um, different encoding UTF-8. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, mm. an, that's an entirely yeah, different issue. <laughs> Making sure that your your command line tools or your your bash tools can actually interpret the yeah. the file types you're giving them, or not the file types but the encoding types. So that's that's a whole other <laughs> can of worms. But that. So then let's talk a little bit about file systems. We got we got a few more topics we want to hit here, and not a whole lot of time left. So let's uh, let's kind of rapid fire this. I think a little bit. So let's let's talk about our differences in file systems and and how uh so for me coming into coming into linux and seeing all the the permissions and kind of the first time i saw somebody mm. chown 777 um and having no idea what that meant i thought it was some sort of like leet speak nonsense that was going on like what are you what are you weird linux person doing i don't understand and i'll be honest to say i, did, I still don't know the full permissions model but it's interesting to see the kind of the representation when you do uh, ls lf and see all of the all the file folder permissions to specify whether it's a file or a folder and how it's all just properties. On to files. me, it was always more simple and, and kind of elegant the way that Linux does it. Um, just because you have you have user, you have group, and then you have everyone else, the others, and you can specify whether they can read, write, or execute. So. You manage your users, whoever owns the file. You manage what groups anyone else has access to. And then you manage the rest of the world. They also introduced uh, file ACLs and things like that that kind of mimic uh, what Windows does. But Windows gives you that full role-based access control and everything that you, you can you can do basically anything yeah. with uh, from, from the outset. So it, being able to, to look at something as a series of three numbers and say it's good to go or not has always been pretty simple to me. Yeah, I mean, actually, hearing you say that makes a lot of things <laughs> click in my head that were like disjointed pieces. Also, thinking about it, I've never actually managed Windows file permissions outside I haven't of the either. GUI. You know, that's something we're gonna have to check out. So, I, I, like, I, I know you can set the user based and group based roles or, and permissions granularly, but I've never tried to do it in a group basis outside of the GUI. That's uh, that's something interesting. I'll have to I'll have to dig into that and maybe tweet about. Windows it. also has the concept of an owner for a file or something like that, but most people don't ever change it. You just, you just deal with the users and groups that have access to the file. I don't think I've ever. I think outside of like side loading a old hard drive, mm. I don't think I've ever changed owners. <laughs> so let's talk a little bit about monitoring. So. Obviously, uh, we've got a couple different ways to look at things here. So I know in, in the Windows space, monitoring is handled largely by the event viewer. Um, and that's where you get a lot of the system details and see when, like, when services started, when users logged into the system, when bad things happen, et cetera. I've actually never looked to see is where, where does, uh, where do logs go in log, usually. And, uh, you, underneath that, there's both the system logs and then usually any other application logs. 
but their event viewer puts that all in that nice little GUI for you. But with um, the directory, it's just a series of files that our log items are appended to. It actually can be surprisingly simple because things like, as they're written item by item, so you can grab each of those items and for something like Logstash mm-hmm. or whatnot, you can ship that single entry over and uh, it, it makes it, it, it only grows one line at a time or, you know, I guess a stack trace at a time. Yeah. Interesting. So that's the, these are the things we, we all wrap up yeah. and ship into Splunk or what have you. One thing I noticed about Windows monitoring was that everything I found really there, other than, you know, finding the tools that people have written recently, everything was a product and uh, everything around that was all, you have to, you have to buy it, you have to pay money. And then you have to talk to a bunch of closed source developers who, who are not going to be there for you all the time. You have to go through the, you know, the, the company's support teams instead of, Hey, I have a fix for this sort of thing. That goes back to like the closed source versus open source thing. But yeah, I mean, that can be, I find for me, I find that to be, both frustrating and I find it frustrating on both ends because on one end you have a dedicated set of people that you can pay to fix something on on the other hand, you've got somebody who's doing this probably in their spare time or a group of people doing this in their spare time. And you, in some cases, not all cases, but in some cases you're almost better off fixing it yourself than, than waiting for it to be fixed by the, the owner. So I get see it frustrating in both ways. I, I love when, when an open source project is responsive, but it's not always the case. And oftentimes I find that I can fix the problem faster and then send it back and offer it to them. for Definitely. When, uh, when we first started this transition here, people kept coming in and saying, hey, do we have a support contract with, with such and such? And I, I'd be like, well, we it's open source. We don't, And there's no company that's supporting that. We don't have a support contract with anyone. I, I don't understand where that came from, but then realizing <laughs> that they, they worked in a completely different world where, you know, there's a, if something's mm-hmm. broken, we call someone and uh, that's kind of the opposite of, of uh, where I've been living. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting because I've, as, in, as I was a .NET developer, almost, I think once or twice that I ever actually reach out to like to Microsoft or some of my vendors for help, everything else we were either working with open source or whatever. And it was just, okay, okay patch it and make it work and you know you're not paying for that support contract yeah, it was actually that was one of the first things that uh, our new windows system asked me he's like do we have a microsoft service agreement and i said i don't know <laughs> <laughs> yeah those are expensive <laughs> all right so let's talk quickly about ldap and active directory so i will say immediately that i actually have no idea how LDAP works. I just, I know the word and I have no idea how that is used to manage users in Linux. It's a little bit more, it doesn't work as well out of the box as Active Directory does, which is, I think in this, if we were talking about a uh, Linux versus Windows sort of thing, Active Directory wins hands down. Most of the Linux LDAP solutions are people that are bolting things on to try and emulate Active Directory. And it's still, like, I, I tried, um, setting up some of the open source ones a while back and I got it working, but it was, uh, it was definitely not a fun experience. Yeah. I mean, it's interesting now I've, I've heard both horror stories and, and great success stories in getting active directory set up too. Um, and it's, it's incredible how much quicker it seems things are going now that it's in, in Azure. So my only experience personally with setting up active directory has been setting it up in my own, 
Azure subscription. But I've just I, I've seen so many problems with people trying to figure out the forest for the trees in their Active Directory setups that it's it just seems like it's one of those things that you, you if you don't maintain it, it's going to grow out of control. Yes. <laughs> you know, the puns the puns are an important part of a conversation. But no, um, as, as far as uh, like for instance, our our Linux boxes here, we do not actually have any sort of LDAP connected to them. Just because they, they exist and they, they do a job and we shouldn't be connecting to them other than with a specific key that most of our automation users, like excuse me, the automation client is using. So Ansible connects with a key and that's the only one that should be on the box. We don't, no users are logging into most of our Linux nodes. That's awesome. I like hands-off. That's the goal. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, one of the goals. The goal is making is, is to get the money. The goal is to be lazy. <laughs> All right. So finally, let's let's cover quickly uh, how do we how do we use Windows on a Mac and how do we use Linux on Windows? So obviously, you know, out of the box, your Mac comes with Boot Camp, right? Uh, but Boot Camp is not always the easiest way to run a system, especially if you're not super comfortable diving into Windows. And even if you are, it does some weird things. Definitely, uh, without VirtualBox <laughs> and Test Kitchen, life would be much, much worse. Yes, I mean, in terms of testing our infrastructure, but in terms of like, in terms of using it for so, so one of the things that we talked about was you've got VirtualBox with a machine that you have set up to run some of your Microsoft utilities that you don't want. You don't want to abandon your Mac for right, just just in order to get a PowerShell terminal without having to spin another box up. So I, I use it if I want to connect to our domain and query things and um, anything that I want to use PowerShell for, even if it's just to get uh, like names of services and things like that. <laughs> yeah, and so that's super handy. It's really cool how you can just use you can set up VirtualBox. Doesn't matter if you're on what what computer you're on, and you can just emulate the operating system you use because that's the same thing I use to to use Linux on Windows is I spin up. Uh, virtual box uh, you know typically it's like you said using test kitchen with chef and then I can just SSH into it and do what I need to do or in, on the rare occasion I need a GUI in Linux I can spin up an Ubuntu server with or Ubuntu desktop with the GUI on it and futz around mm-hmm. in that and wind up back in bash anyway. So the only other thing that I think um, we should definitely talk about was that uh, consistent management tools. So without, without things like chef and, and test kitchen and, and being able to use those same tools between Linux and windows, the fact that the windows support for those has dramatically improved over the last couple of years really was the only reason that I, I thought that even potentially working in this space was going to be possible for me. Because this way, I'm still working on concepts. I'm, I'm learning general things that, that can apply to both Linux and Windows using the same support paradigms, configuration management and continuous integration and infrastructure as code. And using those things applied to the Windows stack with some modifications and, and making it work as we go, that's really the only way that, that made Linux to Windows even an option for me. Yeah, I mean, for me too, that's being able to use those tools to kind of wrap my understanding around without having to <laughs> bash against bash to, to, to teach myself how to do that. It's been, it's been awesome because I can just take these, these expectations that I have and futz around with them until they align 
without getting lost in the, the nitty gritty of, of how things work. That's not to say that the nitty gritty isn't important and understanding those concepts is important, but it's, it's great to be able to get started without. Yeah, definitely. You're able to overhead. take, this is what I know this should look like and figuring out how to make it look like that versus I have no idea where I'm going. And now I need to figure out how to do something in a whole different paradigm. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Matt. Uh, let's let's roll into checkouts real quick. Uh, I don't know if you if you had the opportunity I did not, to check out, Matt. But, uh, uh, if you want to go first, you know I could probably come up with something. So I'm gonna I'm gonna recommend this uh, this new microphone that Matt got me, which I will cut in the actual name of when I remember what it's called. I think it's a Blue Yeti, um, and it's worked a lot better for me than the mic I had before, uh, which is awesome because now I don't have to have Matt Stratton telling me that. I broke his fancy microphone. <laughs> and outside of that, there was a, I watched a cool movie last night on Netflix called The Machine. Um, and uh, I'd recommend that as well. So I actually just moved on to a sailboat. So heated blankets are fantastic. Just, you know, put that out there uh, for those of us going into winter in very cold places. Um, and also, um, I've been reading a book by uh, Brandon Sanderson, the Mistborn series, which I is not new, but uh, I'm picking it up, and uh, I really enjoy his read his uh, writing. Excuse me, it's fantasy sci-fi in some cases, but it's really all I have right now. Cool. We have a newsletter, ArrestedDevOps.com/slash/BananaStand. It's the best way to know about upcoming podcast episodes and cool news with DevOps. We also have an iPhone app if you dig that kind of thing. You can download it for free at ArrestedDevOps.com slash iPhone. Thanks again to our sponsors. Be sure to visit them at ArrestedDevOps.com slash 10th Magnitude and ArrestedDevOps.com slash Datadog. Thanks to Matthew Walter for joining us tonight. And loyal listeners, if you enjoy Arrested DevOps, we would appreciate it if you would visit ArrestedDevOps.com slash iTunes and leave us a review in the iTunes store. We'd love to know what you thought of the episode tonight. Please leave us comments at ArrestedDevOps.com slash OSSwitching. Be sure to check us out at ArrestedDevOps.com or at ArrestedDevOps on Twitter. We're always happy to get your input, ideas, or feedback at shows at ArrestedDevOps.com. Please let us know if you have any ideas for future episodes. I'm Trevor at Trevor G. Hess. We're Arrested DevOps, and remember, there's always DevOps.